This is Stacy Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. Wisconsin is set to receive $841 million from the federal government to replace and eliminate lead pipes that can contaminate drinking water. Wisconsin Public Radio reports. Now that's thanks to the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act and aims to replace over 173,000 lead service lines across the state. Over 40% of those lines are in Milwaukee, where almost 5,000 lines have already been replaced. The city of Madison has already replaced all of their lead pipes. There were around 8,000 lead pipes in Madison prior to that replacement, and they have since moved to copper pipes. Republican Dane County Attorney Jim Troopas has asked the judge to disqualify a law firm bringing a case against both him and false electors of the 2020 presidential election because he is currently using that same law firm as part of an estate plan. Wisconsin State Journal reports that the lawsuit filed in May of this year alleges that 10 false Republican electors, along with Troopas, broke several criminal and civil laws when they signed official-looking documents claiming Donald Trump won Wisconsin in the election. Troopas says that as part of his estate plan, he shared private and confidential matters with the law firm about their family, assets, and finances. The law firm says that because of the attorney helping Troopas with the estate plan is not part of the current lawsuit, they have met their ethical obligations. The case has not yet been assigned to any court. An approximately 200-pound Buddha statue has been reunited with its owner after being pulled out of Lake Monona, according to a release from the Dane County Sheriff's Office. The statue had been reported stolen earlier this week, and yesterday a dive team pulled the statue out of approximately five feet of water near South Blount Street. The symbol of peace, positive energy, and prosperity was returned to its owner today. And a water main break on Regent Street early Monday morning led to a sinkhole to appear the next day, the Capital Times reports. The sinkhole was 15 feet deep and stretched nearly 22 feet beneath the road. Utility crews were able to issue a quick fix by Tuesday evening, and the sinkhole will be repaired with a more permanent patch later this week. And now on to today's top stories. According to data from Public Health Madison in Dane County, 365 people died from a drug overdose in Dane County between 2018 and 2020. And because of unequal access to resources, the drug overdose rate among black residents was more than three times the rate among white people. And of those 365 deaths, 70% of them involved synthetic opioids, including fentanyl. WRT producer Nate Wiggyhout has more. Community Pharmacy is teaming up with Public Health Madison in Dane County to distribute free fentanyl testing strips in an effort to reduce drug overdoses in Dane County. These strips are available at the Pharmacy's east side location on Fair Oaks Avenue. PJ Chamberlain, a pharmacy technician at the pharmacy, says the strips show if there's any fentanyl present in a drug. You take a small amount, usually what um, people are recommended to do is to get things ready as they would normally, and then before they use 
Um, they would take whatever they prepared the drug in and they would test the residue um, using the fentanyl test kit. Um, and then that will um, show um, if there's any fentanyl present in the drug. Chamberlain says that the results are then shown in about five minutes. Not like quite as long as like a COVID test or a pregnancy test, but it is, you know, kind of a similar principle where you stick the strip in and then um, it's a little different actually because it's one line means that fentanyl is present and then two lines means it is not present. Fentanyl is a synthetic opioid originally made as a pain reliever for cancer treatments. But according to the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration, it's about 50 to 100 times stronger than morphine. Kathy Andrews with Public Health Madison in Dane County says that this makes the drug that is cut into much more dangerous. To people who are using drugs, it's really dangerous because it is so concentrated. It's a manufactured opiate. It's not so like whereas heroin is classically it's, you know, a plant that's grown and then like distilled into uh, into heroin to a drug that people use. A fentanyl is manufactured in a lab um, and because it's created in a, in a lab or a factory, it's a lot less expensive than something that comes from a plant that has to be cultivated in certain conditions and the plant itself is very visible and regulated, you know, that type of thing. So it makes it more scarce. So it's really inexpensive. And because it's so inexpensive, it can be added um, anywhere along the distribution process to cut any drug. Andrew says fentanyl can be added to any powdered or liquid drug and not just heroin, as is commonly believed. This just adds to the danger because while someone using heroin may have some tolerance to opioids, someone using cocaine, which is not an opioid, will have a much lower tolerance, so less fentanyl is needed for it to cause an overdose. In March of this year, the Wisconsin legislature passed a bipartisan bill legalizing fentanyl testing strips as they were formally classified as drug paraphernalia. Formerly, only law enforcement agencies were allowed to use the strips, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. Public Health Madison and Dane County began distributing the test strips as soon as they were no longer considered paraphernalia. And it's just one part of a larger harm reduction strategy here in Dane County. Harm reduction can include anything from free fentanyl tests, Narcan, and needles, to services like Never Use Alone. That group, not affiliated with Public Health Madison in Dane County, provides on-call drug use supervision. Someone can call Never Use Alone, and someone will be on the other line while the person uses the drugs to make sure that they are responsive. If the person falls unresponsive, the operator on the other end will contact emergency services to get them help as soon as possible. Chamberlain says that these harm reduction strategies are best used together. So there is a lot of harm reduction techniques that are really um, effective and it's kind of unfortunate that they're needed. But at the same time, you know, the people who are using, they're still human beings. They're still, you know, um, deserving of, of whatever can be done to help reduce the, the amount of overdoses and other issues that are associated with with using. These harm reduction methods are provided at Community Pharmacy through their partnership with Public Health Madison and Dane County, where not only fentanyl testing strips, but Narcan and needles are given for free. Chamberlain says that he is glad to see that Community Pharmacy is distributing the testing strips because for him, the topic is personal. About two years ago, a friend of mine passed away from an overdose. 
And so harm reduction is very important to me, and, and it's very important to me to treat the people who are struggling with addiction issues humanely. And so I'm, I'm very glad that community pharmacy provides these resources to people because I do think they're, they're extremely important and that too many people are kind of just seen as addicts and people kind of toss them aside, but they're, you know, real people with friends and family who care about them. And so I think harm reduction is extremely important. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie Hout. Dane County leaders announced they're stepping up funding to expand reproductive health services in the wake of abortion restrictions. WORT reporter Andy Barrow has the story. Today, city officials announced their plan to expand access to contraception and other reproductive health services. The plan, which will cost Public Health Madison and Dane County $360,000 in additional funding, will go towards expanding both the hours and services offered at the county's sexual and reproductive health clinic here in Madison. Dane County Executive Joe Parisi says that the goal is to expand the service by fall. I will ask the Dane County Board to immediately allocate $360,000 from the county's general reserve fund to jumpstart the expansion of public health staffing, service hours, and additional services for women throughout Dane County, including the addition of long-acting reversible contraception to provide, to provide long-term pregnancy prevention. Once approved, these dollars will allow public health to immediately begin the process of hiring additional staff and making other arrangements to expand services in the next few months. Madison and Dane County will allocate more funding in future years for reproductive health services at an estimated cost of $1 million per year. With that funding comes more comprehensive staffing, hours, outreach, and services. Notably, the clinic will begin offering IUDs, contraception that can last between 5 to 10 years. Here's Janelle Heinrich, Director of Public Health Madison and Dane County. With a single appointment, we will be able to, op- to provide a safe, effective, and con- convenient method of reversible contraception that can be used for a long period of time. Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway described the request for additional funds as a response to the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade in June, which effectively ended the right to choose in Wisconsin. She underlined the importance of access to safe, legal abortion health care and undoing health disparities. The Supreme Court's decision and the Wisconsin legislature's failure to act to restore reproductive rights in Wisconsin will create adverse health care outcomes for many and will disproportionately impact BIPOC women in Madison and Dane County. We already see racial disparities in access to care and maternal and child health outcomes in our community. And these decisions will make those disparities worse. This expansion of public health services in our community will improve health outcomes. Conway noted that similar programs have produced positive outcomes in other states. In Colorado, counties that made it easier to access IUDs saw a 24% decline in high-risk births. A budget amendment to add additional funds to the clinic will need to be approved by two-thirds of the full county board. Abortion remains illegal in Wisconsin due to an 1858 law criminalizing abortion at any stage in one's pregnancy. As a result of the ruling, Planned Parenthood stopped offering abortion health care in Wisconsin last month. However, at a virtual press conference earlier today, Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin and Planned Parenthood of Illinois announced a new partnership. Now patients from Wisconsin will be able to receive care at the Planned Parenthood Clinic in Waukegan, Illinois. 
about 10 miles south of the state border and about an hour's drive from Milwaukee. Jennifer Welch is the president and CEO of Planned Parenthood of Illinois. She described how the partnership will work moving forward. We wish Wisconsin patients didn't have to travel for care. Fortunately, trained medical professionals from Wisconsin are providing the care patients need, and Illinois has the space to accommodate the increase in staff and patients. So while Planned Parenthood Wisconsin is temporarily suspending abortion care, Wisconsin patients have access to abortion in Illinois. Meanwhile, earlier this week, a group of Dane County doctors announced a plan to open two clinics in Rockford, Illinois. One clinic, which is aimed at offering pill abortion services, is scheduled to open as soon as tomorrow. Another clinic, which will offer surgical abortion care, is slated to open in three to six months. To learn more about reproductive and sexual health resources available in Dane County and Wisconsin, visit our web story at wartfm.org. Reporting for WORT, this is Andy Barrow. The Supreme Court has received plenty of coverage in the past weeks, but one decision may have slipped under the radar. In a 5-4 ruling in Oklahoma versus Castro Huerta, SCOTUS granted new authority to the state of Oklahoma to prosecute crimes committed in Indian Territory. The ruling could undermine tribal sovereignty throughout the U.S. Here to tell us more about what the Castro Huerta ruling means for the tribal nations of Wisconsin is WORT reporter Christian Billings. On Wednesday, June 29th, the Supreme Court issued a decision with the potential to compromise tribal sovereignty throughout the United States. Breaking with nearly 200 years of precedent, the 5-4 conservative majority opinion authored by Justice Brett Kavanaugh ruled that the state of Oklahoma can prosecute crimes against Indian victims by non-Indian people on tribal lands. Typically, criminal jurisdiction in Indian territory is shared exclusively between federal and tribal governments. This is a stain on America's history. This case ensures that it is a stain on America's future history as well. That's Richard Monette, professor of law at UW-Madison and director of the Great Lakes Indigenous Law Center. He says the ruling will lead to large changes in state tribal relations. The states will be playing a major role. And criminal jurisdiction doesn't, doesn't come with a nicely confined in a vacuum exercise in a courtroom. So it brings the full plethora of state jurisdiction into Indian country in a way that wasn't there before. In addition to undermining tribal sovereignty, Manette says the Castro Huerta ruling also makes it less likely that crimes committed against Native communities will be prosecuted. Here's an opportunity or an excuse for the feds uh, to step back. And in some jurisdictions, they might not. They will abide by their you know, legal obligations. But in other jurisdictions, as they have been doing, they will stand back. Manette worries that states will not fill the void left by the retreat of federal law enforcement. They don't fill the void, especially when the defendant, the, the perpetrator, is a non-native and the victim is a native. You know, the states have not stepped in to prosecute that because, after all, the victim was just an Indian. While the Castro Huerta ruling implies shifts in policing and prosecution in much of Indian territory, Wisconsin is one of a handful of states where the ruling upholds existing law. That's because in 1953, Congress passed Public Law 280, granting six states criminal jurisdiction on Indian Territory, including California, Minnesota, and Wisconsin. PL 280 was a terrible law. 
It was a colonizer law intended to continue conquest and assimilation. It has, in some respects, done exactly that. The only exception to PL 280 in the state of Wisconsin is the Menominee Reservation, which is the largest reservation east of the Mississippi River. With the new Supreme Court ruling, the Menominee tribe sovereignty may be at risk. So here we are in the state of Wisconsin, 10 tribes subject to PL 280 and one not. And the one that's not, Menominee, is going to face all of what I just said. Over time, creeping state patrolling, investigating prosecutions. Manette argues that it would be more effective to invest authority and money in tribal law enforcement. It would be much more clear for America to treat Indian tribes like sovereigns, a political entity with political relationships and under, with territory and property and citizens and everything that that stands for. Uh, but that's not what, they're, what the court is doing. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Kristen Billings. With abortion now illegal in Wisconsin, people are traveling to Illinois, one of the few Midwest states where abortion is legal, for reproductive health care. That journey is easier said than done. For this week's Isthmus on Wart, WORT producer Nate Wiggyhout spoke with Judith Davidoff, editor and president of Isthmus, about her journey to accompany a woman to Illinois to get an abortion. So just to start things off here, Judith, your story follows one woman's trip down to Illinois to get an abortion after Roe was overturned. Can Tell me a little bit about her journey. Sure. Um, you know, she um, discovered fairly early on that she was pregnant uh, through a home pregnancy test. She figured she was about um, five weeks or so. Um, she knew she uh, was not in a position to um, have a baby at this point in her life, and her uh, boyfriend was on board with whatever decision she made. And um, so uh, initially, he reached out to a friend, um, Lily, because, uh, Lily, uh, because um, she's just uh, kind of a... Um, involved in uh, various issues around autonomy and uh, consent and uh, thought she'd be a good person to talk to about sort of next steps now that there's no, um, now that abortion services are not available in Wisconsin. And so um, initially um, they started calling uh, clinics in Illinois and it was uh, frustrating at first because it was hard to get through, hard to get someone on the line. Um, and then they did finally get through to this one clinic um, and uh, she was able to make an appointment for a medication abortion um, because she was, you know, as I said, five weeks pregnant. So still within the um, uh, time frame for medication abortion. And um, then pretty much just started planning um, the trip. I believe it was um, maybe on a Tuesday or a Wednesday, and the appointment was on Saturday. And then, so were you the one to go down with Abby down to Illinois? And uh, what was that experience like? Yeah, I traveled in the car, but uh, Lily is the one who uh, drove her down. And so I just really wanted to be a fly on the wall and, um, you know, be able to uh, chronicle what the experience was like. Um, you know, she expressed that she was um, mostly nervous about um, really what the medication, um, if there would be any side effects or complications. It's a very safe 
um, medication, uh, according to doctors. Um, but still, you know, anytime you, you have to do something, um, there's some, um, you know, uh, I think people have some concerns. Um, but she was, um, you know, she was not really anxious about her decision. She was, um, you know, very at peace and firm in that. And, um, the, we left early, um, just in case, uh, you know, just in case encountering traffic, um, and, uh, actually got to the clinic fairly early. And, um, instead of driving around and wasting time, she decided she just wanted to go in and see if they would take her early. And they did. And then, so while she was in there, there were some anti-abortion protesters standing outside the clinic as well. And you spoke with them. What was that sort of like? I did. Yes. Um, you know, it was, um, when we drove up, I think it was almost like a shift change because, um, they must've been there for the morning. And I would say there were about a dozen, but you could see some of them were already packing, um, up their signs and leaving. But there was then this core group of about, I think four or five, um, all men, um, at that point, including one, who uh, had a uh, baby carrier and, uh, you know, started yelling, uh, repent, repent. And you could see that it was not a real baby in the carrier. It was um, like a doll. And um, also, interestingly, when he was yelling, this other man walked over to him and said, oh, no, 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 don't yell. You know, let's just essentially try to, um, you know, start a conversation. And um, so it was then that I walked over to talk to um, primarily this guy who would only give his name as John. And um, that's that's what most of that interview was about, just trying to get a sense from them why they were there and what their thoughts on both the recent ruling in Dobbs, which overturned Roe, um, you know, their take on that. And um, he volunteered really his own um uh, frustration, sadness, uh, whatever about, um, Illinois essentially providing a haven, uh, for women from Wisconsin and elsewhere, um, that it, abortion remained legal in Illinois and, um, you know, that women were obviously, um, going to be accessing services in Illinois if they couldn't in their home state. Now, that that sort of brings up sort of the whole crux of your story here, which is that abortion is now illegal here in Wisconsin, uh, but legal down in Illinois. What what does the political landscape around abortion look like in Illinois? Uh, You say in your story that the process there is much more streamlined than it uh, ever was here in Wisconsin. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, not ever. But, you know, certainly in recent years, as restrictions were passed, in Wisconsin. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the, I mean, I don't even know if you call it an irony, but um, one of the, um, I guess it is an irony of, um, you know, this woman who we called Abby um, in her going to Illinois, that yes, uh, additional stress and travel, additional expenses, um, you know, for other people, it could be um, need for childcare, and who knows what other barriers for travel. Um, but in the case of medication abortion, um, she's able in Illinois, you are able to, um, you know, simply make an appointment, um, get the uh, medication abortion 
um, in, it, it is a two-step process. Um, but in Wisconsin, because of laws that were passed recently and within the last 10 years or so, um, well, actually, don't quote me on that. It could have been a little longer than 10 years, but let's say within the last couple of decades to be very safe, um, you in Wisconsin, you needed to, first of all, there's a 24-hour waiting period for any abortion. And then in the case of medication abortion, you needed to see the same doctor um, in an initial visit and then at the time when you got the um, medicine. And so when I talked to one of the um, doctors at Planned Parenthood, she said, you know, that always was an issue of trying to match patient schedules to doctor's schedules because, you know, they're not there full time. And so sometimes the delay between that first visit and the first dose of the medication could be a week or so. Well, Judith, we're running up against the clock a little bit here. Do you have just any final thoughts on your story that you'd like to share with me here? Um, I just, you know, it was something I wrote about in another part of the um, the paper that, you know, this kind of reporting, it's um, you, you really need to be sensitive to sort of the shifting legal landscape. Um, you know, Wisconsin's abortion law uh, criminalizes the doctor, not the woman, um, woman, but still, um, you know, in this in this era of who knows what, um, you know, I felt as a reporter still have to be very careful about um, identifying people just on the off chance um, someone would be a zealot prosecutor on some level. And I mean, this woman did want to be anonymous. That, of course, was, you know, um, something we were OK with. But we also made a decision not to um, identify the clinic after talking to them. Um, they, too, were just a little concerned um, in terms of the. Um, legalities, even though it's completely legal in Illinois. And, you know, there's no question about that. I think people are just on edge and um, also don't want to be further targeted um, by uh, protesters. So um, it just adds another um, level of, um, you know, thought when reporting on these kinds of stories. I've been talking with Judith Davidoff, editor and president over at Isthmus and the author of the story, One Madison Woman's Trip to Illinois for an Abortion. You can find that story online at isthmus.com or in print around Madison. Go pick yourself up a print copy of Isthmus. Uh, Judy, thank you so much for talking with me here today. Thank you very much. And thanks for all of Ward's coverage as well. We often see the mourning families of murder victims gathered at the site of a shooting, but that trauma can last a lifetime and can rear its head at any time. Last Saturday, parents of victims of gun violence gathered at a local church to share their grief with each other. And WORT reporter David Ahrens. Ever more frequently, we hear about another mass shooting targeting some identified group. African Americans in Buffalo, gay men in Orlando, Latino shoppers in El Paso, or at worst, little schoolchildren. Unlike individual gun deaths, which occur every few minutes in the U.S., these mass shootings are heavily reported in the media, at least until the next one erupts. Single gun deaths or injuries are only briefly covered by local news, in part because they are so commonplace. Young black men comprise about 5% of the U.S. population, but are half of the homicide victims. 
By ignoring these victims of gun violence, we also ignore what is often a lifetime of suffering of the many family members who survived them. Last Saturday, a group of parishioners gathered at the Christ the Solid Rock Church on Buckeye Road. Their purpose was to publicly speak out about the tragic deaths of their children. Some were killed 20 or 10 or two years ago. It didn't matter how long ago. As many said, the pain never goes away. Here are a few of their voices. First, we'll hear Alder Barbara McKinney, who organized the program, followed by Everett Mitchell, pastor of the church. We're hearing from women and men who have lost their child or someone they love to gun violence. But well, Hendrix is always reminded that the pain doesn't stop. Yeah. Pain doesn't stop. And while everything else in the world seems to just keep going and everybody else seems to be just moving on, we have to create moments and pockets of time where we give mothers and families an opportunity to be and say, we stand here with you and we remember too. Just speaking in front of everyone, but <clears throat> um, when I woke up on May 16, 2018, I didn't know my life was going to change. My son was taken from me that day from a man that was very jealous of him. Sleepless nights I have um, through this pain and, you know, I, man, I have so much to say, but I'm just gonna put this down because I gotta say what I gotta say. <laughs> you know, my son, he was my best friend. I had him when I was 14, 15, I'm pregnant when I was 14, I had him when I was 15 years old. I took care of my son all the way until he was, to the day he was, took it from me. I got him through high school, he played football, he played basketball, he was in every sport. He has saved a lot of lives, he was an organ donor, and he has saved 14 lives. He has he have saved so much, he has did a lot, and he has saved a lot of people. And I just want to thank God for that. And um, God is the reason why I'm standing, and my church family is the reason why I'm standing, because I still lean on them when I need help. That's what it was. Everybody say, you know, you got five stages of grief. But the thing is, those stages come and go, come and go, come back, go. One minute, you're good. Two seconds later, you're in a corner falling. It'll never go away. I feel like when he passed, a part of me left. I don't feel the same anymore. And I try to, I try to tell my kids, I try to tell those around me, like, I know y'all realize it because I realize I'm not the same person anymore since he passed away. And I don't think I'm, I'll ever be that same person. Even after the funeral, it never stops. So with this, I feel like it's other parents that went through this, even if it was 20, 30 years ago or yesterday. I mean, because, you know, it's hard, it's rough, and it's going to be rough the rest of our Earth days. So we need each other. Amen. That wasn't only my son's life gone, his life was gone too. Because although mine was, you know, in grave, and the grave wouldn't be coming back, him being incarcerated for life too, you know. So there's two life taken, you know, taken from 
taken from each other. And it took me some time. I can be driving down the street, and when I hear a siren going, uh, I just completely almost almost stop. You know, you're afraid to move on. And then sometimes when you look like you get to a stoplight, it just oh gosh, it was just I didn't know how I was going to do it. And sometimes I can be riding down that belt line and. And just was like look up in the sky and the sun is so bright in your eyes and everything and i'm just saying lord 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 uh i just couldn't do it and just seemed like i'm seeing what happening you know and i said they're like, you know my child up there lord lord take care of him so you never ever get over this it's been 10 years and certain things just sparked up i had a man today call i mean this week call my job and say the person gave him the wrong information, he wanted to come to my job and shoot that person. That person needs to get shot. I'm like, are you serious? Who are you talking to? So me and him had words, and I ended up telling him a stupid MF and hung up on him. I got his information to pass along. <laughs> and so I'm just saying that it never goes over. I was drinking, girl. I wouldn't go home because Jonathan was always at home. That was my baby boy. He was all at home. Jack and that was in school. So all my kids are like coping with it differently, and we like all spattered over. So what I did realize is that I'm a, I have to tell myself, stop talking about how he died. Yes. To all you mothers who lost an actual blood child that you birthed, it's just as hard for me as a mother who loved this child, who loved me like a mother, who chose me to call me mother, to lose him to such violence to save my kids, but my birth kids are still alive. And I long for him. I long for him all the time because he cherished every moment we had. He cherished me. We all need somebody to lean on. This week on Out of the Box Podcast, we hear an excerpt of an interview with ex-con, now entrepreneur J-Ball, owner of Palletpreneurs, Wholesale and Supply Store, and Circle of Fun Party Supplies. He spoke with feature contributor D-Star about his journey from foster care to prison and finally to businessmen. What's up, everybody? This is your host, D-Star, and you're listening to Out of the Box. we got a special guest today. Going on, my name is J-Ball. For the people that don't know you, can you give us a little bit about your background and where you come from? And I was a 82 baby. I was born in that era, the crack era, as is known. So it's like my whole family, they just took a hit the whole 80s. So I was just basically born into everything that kids shouldn't grow around around. So it's like just Humble Park area. In that time, it was just... What kind of things did you have to overcome coming up as a kid? I had to overcome family. And that's the biggest one for me. Because it was like my family were the ones that were bringing me down. I don't know if that makes sense to a lot of people, but it's like my family is how I was getting in trouble. That was basically the biggest thing for me my whole life is just always trying to get over family. Let's go back. Chicago, Illinois. 
humble part? It was it just you, or do you got brothers and sisters? Or? It was brothers and sisters, like four baby mamas. My dad had. Wow. My dad died when I was what five. Mm-hmm. He died uh, when I was in Puerto Rico on our way over here. He was about to, you know, get an apartment, you know, get everything together for us to come over. But then he had a baby mama in um, Philadelphia, so he took off over there. And a couple of weeks before we were coming out here, he had got murdered out there. Did you know him? From what a five-year-old can remember, you know, after 20-something odd years, it's like, it's harder. Without a picture, it's hard to remember too much, you know? So it's like, he was at a young age, so it's like, I remember his image, but I don't remember, like, actual voices, you know, conversations, anything like that. So you grew up with mama, granny? No, I grew up with my, um, I grew up with my grandma. I grew up with uh, with a bunch of beer house, which is old ladies. I grew up with two of them. Okay. They were already past the age of 60. They were oh, already wow. in their 60s. You know what I mean? So it's like I, I slept on the floor. I slept in the living room floor. And that's why I slept after years on a little little mattress pad that they had for me with a little pillow and a blanket. Not only that, you are being raised in uh, old school rules. Very tough. Very, very strict. Like it's a strict environment. My grandma had me on a regimen. She had me doing stuff that a six-year-old ain't supposed to be doing. But it's like that was her way of just teaching me how to grow up her way. She's like, yeah. I can't teach you how to be a man. It's like, oh, I could teach you what I know. So when did you start having trouble with the law? Well, it's after getting older and finding out what really happened with my dad. At some point, you know, I was told that um, my dad had got killed by his own mob. And right away, I was in that culture. My whole family were like, so it's like once me hearing that, that that was a possibility where he got killed, I no longer wanted to be around it because I right. felt like some type of betrayal you know what I mean but I just always been the type of individual is like no one else is going to be my mom right. no one else is going to be my dad so my other brothers and sisters they got in tune with they calling my aunts and uncles mom and dad and stuff like that and I just never wanted a part of that so that right away I always had me like you know they already gave me the little black sheep look right. like I'm not the only one co- cooperating with it so after just acting out and acting out I got picked up by DCFS and, and that was started the whole journey for me, basically. It was that moment, 10 years old. So you ended up in the system? Yeah, I ended up in the system. Uh, the funny thing is, one of the reasons I ended up in the system is that my family had, um they wanted an SSI check. So they basically had me and my brother on down under mentally retarded. So it's like, I'm far from that and there's nothing wrong with anybody that has mental issues. But, you know, at the time, you know, I was just like, what? So just based off that alone, it just opened a, a door of things. Since the guy's not in his right mind, his grandma can't take care of him, I just became a ward of the state. They send me wherever they can put me at. It was a, a mental hospital, group homes, counties, just secluded, always moving, shuffling around from state to state. So you end up going to prison. Well, prison, <sighs> the juvenile, just in Roosevelt Street in Chicago, just the Audi home, that was like a prison in itself. Right. Just going there, you already got a taste of what it is. And if you've been through that and you get a little older, it's just like, it's basically the same foundation. They treating us just like grown people in there. You get out of the Audi home. So what did you end up going to adult prison for? Cocaine, that's what I sold. And I was like, that was it. That was the 90s. That was it for Humble Park. It was big on, every section had their little thing going on. The West Side was known for the heroin and stuff like that. Humble Park, we mostly sold rocks. You know, a lot of dudes in the South Side, they did wiki stick. You know, everybody did their thing. At 17, you get popped, right? And they so they start giving you big time and charging you as an adult or what happened? Well, I sat in Cook County for about a year and a half. Like, I fought the crap out of it. So right away, it's like they gave me with the 16. I sat it out and I brought it down. And I still ended up doing, what, seven years out of it. 
So what was some of the things that you had to overcome in prison? In prison, it was um, showmanship, trying to show off. So it was either I was fighting or I was getting my up every week for at least a month straight. And that was basically my first month. So you come home after doing the seven. What made you want to change your life? Well, that wasn't it. I came home and I got presented with work. This was a family. I tried to get a job through a temp. I did that for like a month. But this time I just kept lying to myself, talking about I'm just going to do a little bit smarter this time. Going to just chill. Like it didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> it never does. It didn't work. So you get out off of that. Um, what made you want to change things? I didn't. You still didn't. I went back for the third time over um, threatening the public official. I got into it with a off-duty cop. We got into an argument. It got heated. He called the police and made his statement and said that I threatened him. And, you know, they did what they did. It was in Joliet. They over there, they all basically testified against me, at least four officers. So they still gave me three years for that due to my record. So then I got out again after doing uh, almost a year on that. And then I had called a home invasion. It's like I was on a roll. I had no kids. Nobody wrote me. Nobody sent me money. Every time I went in, it was just me. Right. Like, I'm just going to keep going here until the wheels fall off. You know, and the turning point was because I just recently did a bid. Just three years ago, I had got out. I got off papers here in Wisconsin. But that was something that happened here in Madison with a family member. But that's when I had decided to stop. But the turning point for me was when um, my girl, she told me she was pregnant. And she told me that she was going to have the baby. And, and that right there was the turning point. So you went through that transformation. You come home. You got a baby on the way. Or, or did, was the baby The baby born? was right when I was going to get sentenced. Oh, so you missed that. So she told me, is either you go to the joint or you see your firstborn. And I was like, I'm going to see my firstborn. But we made the decision. And I told her, yeah, I'm going to go on the run. You know, I can get caught today, tomorrow, two hours from now, a month from now. That lasted about, what, three years. I even had a, a second child at that time. Wow. During that time on the run. He said, but I ran for about three years until, you know, Wisconsin caught up with me. So when you did get popped, how much time did they hit you with? I ended up doing two. They gave me two and they made me do the whole two. And there's one thing about the Wisconsin prison system. They have a lot of things. They give you a lot of freedom as far as you trying to learn. And they got a pretty good extensive looking libraries in most of these joints. Anything that they had available, I was just doing it. it was, you know, I, I told myself that this time around, it was the hardest because of my kids. So it's like, it's either this is it. This is what I've been waiting for for three years. And it wasn't even over with. It's like, man, I still got to do the time, get out and do the parole with it too. So overall, that was still like 10 years of just invested into one situation. But it was, uh, it was a good outcome. It was the best bit I had because I actually had something to look forward to, something to miss, something to consider. I had built stuff. I started, you know, building, going on the run. I, every step from there was calculated. Like, I, right, I've been out a year. I wasn't expecting this. So it was like, cool, from here on, I just go to work. And now, if you are about that DIY life and have an interest in sewing, then you know it's a pricey pastime. Machines cost anywhere from hundreds to thousands of dollars, and that's just the beginning. Joe Jensen is an artist, a retired teacher, and someone who knows her way around a needle and thread. In this episode of Radio Chipstone, Jensen and contributor Jennifer Fields take stock of the sewing machine and accompanying gadgets Field inherit, Fields inherited from her mother. Chances are good you have a thing in there that may fold a long rectangular strip of material to make it 
into like a piece of tape. Well, I have to take a look at them and Here see. Here you go. Well, let's oh. look now. Okay. There's this thing. There's this, this thing. That's a zipper foot. This thing. There's this thing. That is a buttonhole foot. Come here. Here. <clears throat> I think it's maybe this thing. I don't know. Oh my goodness. These these things look like surgical tools. I think this is actually the one that folds stuff. This one here. I think that's the folder. See how you would stick something in there and it would pull it through. Look at this buttonhole maker. Yep. Look that, at this thing. That, that, that thing is such a piece of engineering. And what's crazy is all this stuff still works. This is before the day of planned obsolescence when you would have a sewing machine for however old that thing is. Did your mom buy it new? Check it out. It was a wedding present. My, not a wedding present, but it was my father bought it for her for her anniversary. The machine, this machine was made, because I looked up the number in 1927, mm -hmm. which is the year that she was born. Mm -hmm. So this was a machine that they made up and up through the 50s, which would make perfect sense that he would buy it for her for her wedding anniversary. Mm -hmm. But this was her anniversary gift, and apparently she, want, she really wanted it. Okay, so this is the original book that came with the machine. Oh, yeah. You can still find these online for almost every sewing machine out there that you can still find, like, the old book. But you know what you can't find? Hmm. You can't find the original book where I wrote my sister's name on, on it, it, trying to get her in trouble, thinking that if I wrote her name on it, I could be like, look, Sharon's drawing on your stuff. Mm. That's what you're not going to find online. No, no. So no, this no. is the original book, and what's so sweet about this is that if you look through here, you can see where, oh, come on, where is it? My mother made notes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nice. Her hand, she had a beautiful hand. This is what's telling us what the parts are. French fold, mm -hmm. boom. Binding and piping. The ruffler, that's this crazy thing. Yeah, what, this one is really fun. It, it like pinches the fabric as you go along, so it makes this like perfect little ruffle. It's, I mean, they're really cool things. And these books are really, I mean, even for today, it is really, these are, <laughs> they are very useful. When I was a kid, I used to, any book in the house, we had, we had a piano and there was sheet music and stuff, and any empty page in a book had a drawing of mine in it. <laughs> That's why we get along so well. <laughs> well they, you know, they were buying me paper to draw on, so it's kind of like, all right, and I didn't like coloring books because I can't color in the lines, so. We have every part and every tool here I think we could possibly need, and then some. So, what are we looking at here? Uh, we are looking at um, uh, historic uh, <laughs> ephemera. <laughs> 
from uh, sewing in the 19... Your mom, 1940s is when she got this, right? Late 40s. She was born 50s. in 27... Oh, she would kill me if she was still alive. She was born in 27. She probably would have gotten this machine. My father was in World War II. I'm going to say 50. Okay. 40, 48, 49, 50 around okay. in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're looking at. All sorts of interesting analog mechanical devices for a sewing machine. Whereas now all just every sewing machine that's built, I think, um, for the most part, is, is electronic. So um, there's not as many of these uh, metal gears and so forth going on in there. What's amazing to me is that this is all the stuff. I mean, it's, a te- it's, it's basically how I was raised and how I am. Like, I always keep all of my manuals, I keep every, and if I sell something, you get all the manuals and you get everything with it. Mm-hmm. But to have even down to, wow, like the, the blades, the original blades that go with it, it wasn't like she had this stuff in its set. She used it. Mm-hmm. All of this stuff is well used and mm-hmm. still in great condition. And this buttonhole thing. This is, and this buttonhole, for one thing, you can do keyhole buttonholes on here, which are really cool. They look like an old-fashioned keyhole where they're rounded up at the top and long. And look at these little um, cog sets that you put in there for the various type of buttonholes that you want. They're different lengths. And then we've got, you know, most machines have a zigzag maker, but we have one that we have to attach the machine. Yeah, because it's the the zigzag... With this machine that you have, I don't think it the needle zigzags on its own. What this does is the contraption fits over your fabric and it moves the fabric back and forth as opposed to the sewing machine moving um, the uh, what you, the post that holds the needle moving back and forth to make a zigzag. <laughs> so <laughs> are we going to start this thing and dinosaurs are going to reappear? Like what is going on? <laughs> Could be. Do, do, what, it depends on what your uh, frock material looks like. I should have scales. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm excited as we move through this process. I know she. W- I've never used these. She would not have turned me loose on her machine and let me oh, use no, these Oh, no, you would have messed those up. I mean, a, a kid, you'd, you'd have to mess around with it, and then you'd have to jam something in it and then break it. And they go, oh, I, I didn't mean to, which is what kids do. But um, these are just awesome. And they're all in pristine condition and workable, so you can ruffle and, and bias tape and... And French r- seam myself into a coma. That's right. Man. For WORT, I'm Jennifer Fields. And that's a wrap for WORT's live local news at 6. Your reporters tonight were Andy Barrow and Kristen Billings. Special thanks to feature contributors David Ahrens, D-Star, and Jennifer Fields. Ken Brady engineered the show. Nate Wiggy helped produce this newscast. And Ms. Sholly Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Get your WORT local news on the go. Listen to the news as a podcast wherever you subscribe. Up next is a perpetual notion machine. Good night, everybody.